Today we are continuing, yes, there it is, our Faith in the Fathers series about the heroes of the Old Testament, about the story of God's people going through the Old Testament, and today we are coming to the story of Moses, which was always my favorite Bible story growing up. I absolutely love the story of Moses. I did when I was a really little kid, like it was my favorite little story to read in my child's picture book thing. And I still love it today. It's a really cool story. God does so many cool things through Moses. The story of Moses itself is so cool, full of so many wonders and marvels. And Moses is such a cool hero. Moses is like the ultimate wonder-working hero, at least the way we think of him, you know, in pictures like that one, he kind of feels like Gandalf or Merlin or something like that, right? He's got like almost a wizard kind of an energy to him or something like that, right? He is a wonder-working hero. And he is part of one of the great stories from the Bible, a story of good versus evil, a story of, I mean, you just think about Moses' story born as someone condemned to death, passing through the water, drawn out of the water, becoming something like a prince of Egypt, becoming an outcast, going into the desert, getting a mission from God, coming back, performing miracles, going up against Pharaoh. You don't get much better in terms of bad guys than Pharaoh. I mean, Egyptian culture is and what or was ancient Egyptian culture was demonic it was evil when I was a little kid I was scared to death of mummies and I don't mean like the shambling uh, toilet paper mummies but like actual mummies I, th I think when I was five we went to the, the children's museum in Indianapolis anybody been to the Children's Museum, Great Children's Museum in Indianapolis. At the time, they had an Egyptian exhibit, and you went down into kind of this crypt-like area that was made to look like a pyramid, uh, you know, like the inside of a pyramid, and there was uh, relics and statues and like Anubis and Ra, and there in the center with like, you know, it was all dark, and there was like a spotlight coming down on it, was a mummy in a sarcophagus. And it really freaked me out. And from that, from, from about age five to 10, like that was the thing. It wasn't, I mean, I think it was like a little bit of Freddy Krueger because that's the era I come from, but mostly it was mummies. I was really scared of mummies. And once again, we're talking about like, I was picturing like King Tut's, you know, death mask coming for me, which is, which is much scarier than like the, you know, when I say I'm scared of mummies, I'm just afraid people picture like the mummies and obviously those are not, you know, walk, walk for your life. Oh no, it's a mummy. That's, those aren't scary. But Egypt feels evil. They had all these demonic gods. Pharaoh himself had a snake for his headdress. He was the snake king. They were the people of the serpent. What is the serpent? The serpent is the devil, 
right? The serpent is the first guise that Satan takes. The serpent is identified with Satan throughout Scripture. And so those were the Egyptians. And those were the villains of the story of Moses. You couldn't ask for a better evil empire for our hero to fight, right? And you have these plagues, you have these miracles, you have the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, one of the great miracles that God did in history. It's just a great story. It's a really great story. They've made, I think they've made something like four or five movies, but probably some of you are familiar with some of the movies. Like, did anybody grow up watching the Ten Commandments, the Charlton Heston movie? Which is pretty campy if you watch it now. You know, Moses has like an Egyptian girlfriend and she's got dialogue like, Oh, Moses, Moses, you splendid, adorable, stubborn fool. Stuff like that. But when you have thousands of extras that are going through the desert and you have these epic scenes of the parting of the Red Sea and stuff, even if some of the special effects are dodgy by today's standards, it's pretty cool. Like you still feel the weight of this primordial story. Right? And then I'm sure some of you are familiar with the Prince of Egypt movie. I think that came out when I was a late teenager or something like that. And it's pretty good, as I remember. I haven't seen it since then, but you know, they have animations so they can show all the miracles and all the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and stuff in a way that Charlton Heston, bless his soul, couldn't really do. Um, and it's got Mariah Carey ballads. I could probably still sing that. There can be miracles when you believe. Everybody loves that movie, right? A huge reference point for all of us. Well, you understand why, they would, why Hollywood would make two movies about Moses, why they would keep coming back to this story. It is an epic story. Moses was a wonder-working hero, a liberator. He was someone who looked upon the glory of God. He was theologically speaking, and we'll talk about this. He was the mediator of the old covenant. That's a mouthful. Um, but in short, he did a lot of awesome things. And I'm not setting you up to say, but actually the story's about something, you know, you've been down, you've seen people preach sermons before. So you know how this kind of thing works. But the, the story of Moses actually is awesome. It is full of marvelous works that God did. And we should marvel at the things that God does. We should remember them when our faith is weak. We should remember, oh, I don't know if we're going to be able to pay the mortgage this week. Well, God did split the Red Sea in two so that his people could pass through. It's, it's actually worth thinking about those things. You see people, other people in the Bible, you see the psalmist rehearse things like what happened through the story of Moses. So, that's the first thing I want to say before we even get into it is that we don't want to be too theological or too sophisticated or, or too whatever to not just see the kind of Sunday school of it all. Like, it's an exciting story full of God's wonders and God's marvels. And that's one of the reasons that it's there. And we, we just don't want to let our, our wonder muscle get flabby. You know what I mean? When we go to the Bible, like, we, we, we want to actually feel the weight and the power and, and, and the excitement of these things. So it's an awesome story of a hero. It's an awesome story of an awesome God doing awesome things. It's also the story of a man. And what was Moses like as a man? 
He was a sinner. Yes. Any thoughts about what kind of a sinner he was? He was a murderer, yes. He murdered a guy. That's true. What else? What's that? Kind of a coward, yes. That's actually what I was looking for. He was timid. Moses was afraid. Moses, as we'll see, had a lot of trouble accepting the call of God when it was put on him. He tried to sort of say, not me, right? Moses, as a man, was dealt with fear. He dealt with sin. He was not eloquent. eloquent. I mean, that's actually the big lie of the Charlton Heston movie. You know, Charlton Heston, Pharaoh, you shall let my people go. He's very well-spoken, whatever else you want to say about the man. That wasn't Moses. Moses was not a particularly eloquent guy. That's one of his objections when God says, I'm going to send you Moses. Moses is like, but God, I, I can't talk very well. And actually, if you read the, the story, what you'll see is that Aaron, like if you made a real, real movie, you'd get Charlton Heston to play the Aaron part. Um, because Aaron, Moses' brother, is the one that does all the talking and is kind of well-spoken and actually even does the miracles. You know, Moses will be like, take my staff, Aaron, and then Aaron will actually do the things. But that just doesn't make as good of a movie, right? So humbled, uh, Moses didn't always want the burdens of doing the things that God had for him. Uh, Moses also had great virtues. What, what, what is the most famous virtue of Moses? He was meek. Yes, Numbers 12.3, written, interestingly enough, by Moses, says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Does that strike anyone as just a little bit ironic? Well, it's not. You're wrong. Because it says right there he was meek, so that must be the kind of thing that a meek person would write. Humility doesn't mean denying what's true about you. It means acknowledging what's true about God and then acknowledging what's true about you. So I, I want to kind of focus on Moses the man today. Our, our series is called Faith of Our Fathers. And I want to talk about what kind of faith it took for Moses to do the amazing things that Moses did. And the one big thing that I want to sort of highlight today is that Faith for Moses meant obeying when he did not want to obey. And faith means obeying for us sometimes when we don't want to obey, which sounds like a really depressing lesson for a sermon, but I, but I actually don't think it is. Just hang with me, though. So we're going to sketch Moses' life. We're going to go really fast, just like we've been going. So it all starts with the story of Joseph. Pastor Ben was talking about that last week. Joseph goes to Egypt, he becomes the second in command of all of Egypt, and he saves the Egyptians. The Hebrews move to Egypt during this famine, they settle in the land of Goshen, and everything's great. The Egyptians, the Hebrews, they work well together. Joseph is this beloved leader of Egypt. And then Joseph dies, that whole generation dies. Maybe more importantly, that whole generation of Egyptians die. The years pass, eventually there is a pharaoh who just simply does not remember Joseph and all the wonderful things that Joseph did for Egypt. And let me see here. So uh, Exodus 1.8, picking up the story there. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. 
Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So Pharaoh's like, ah, these people, I don't know who they are. I don't remember anything good about them. All I know is that they are multiplying in our land. And if somebody should come against us, they might side with them. They could rebel at any time. These people are a problem. How are we going to deal with it? this? Hey, I know. We'll make them our slaves. And so he enslaves the people um, of Israel. But there's a problem. The people of Israel keep multiplying. They keep growing. And Pharaoh is really freaked out about this. And so he comes up with a wonderful idea. Hey, what if we killed all the Hebrew baby males? And that is the world that Moses is born into. Moses is condemned to death simply for the crime of being a little baby male. And Moses's parents love him. His mother in particular hides him for about three months. If you know anything about babies, if you've had a baby, you can hide them for maybe about three months, but then they start getting loud and difficult to hide. And so it's like, this isn't gonna work anymore. We're gonna have to do something. And we all have probably been to Sunday school. We know what happens or we've seen the movie or something. She puts Moses into a basket and kind of rolls it out on what was probably the Nile. It's fun to think so, at least. And he floats along on the water and she kind of consigns him to God. And his sister follows along to see what's going to happen. And it was really interesting reading the commentators about that, by the way, because some of them were like, oh man, I can't believe that this woman had so little faith that she consigned her baby to be exposed to the elements, just like the, uh, the, the Romans used to do. And then other ones were like, man, I can't believe this woman had so much faith that she sent her baby out into the elements, trusting that God would take care of something. I like that version better, and I have no particular insight about that. I just thought it was interesting. Um, so Moses floats down the river, and then this wonderful irony happens. This, this, like, you just love the way that God makes history happen. You love the way that God tells the story of the universe, because he puts in these little funny grace notes where the very man who has declared that Moses should die is the man whose daughter finds Moses and is like, ah, cute baby, I'm going to adopt him. And then, that's not even the funny grace note. The funny grace note is, ah, oh, man, I wish I had somebody to nurse this baby. And then Moses' sister is waiting in the wings, and she comes in like, hey, I hear you need somebody to nurse the baby. I, I know a lady that happens to be lactating right now. Would you like to pay her money to nurse this baby? And then Moses' birth mom gets paid to do the thing she already would have loved to do, which is like keep her baby and nurse her baby, which is just really cool. So Moses grows up. Now here is where, if you're watching any of the Moses movies, you're gonna have like an hour of stuff right here. And the Bible, interestingly, has absolutely nothing. So the whole title, the whole premise of the movie, Prince of Egypt, is that Moses was a prince of Egypt. And presumably, as the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, he was something like that. But the fact is, 
The Bible provides no history there. We really don't know what Moses's life was like. I mean, any, you understand why they do it, because it's fun to speculate. Like, any of the movies that you watch, it's always going to, like, the whole drama is like, he was a brother of Ramesses, and they, you know, he, maybe in the Charlton Heston one, he doesn't even know he's Jewish, which seems a little suspicious to me. I mean, in that movie, everybody's like a, a white guy with blue eyes, except for Yul Brenner, I guess. But it's, it's funny, like, they, they always do this thing, like, Moses has to discover his heritage, and he has to figure it out, and there's all this drama, like, is he going to choose the Egyptian? But we don't really know anything like that from the Bible. I mean, maybe there was something like that. We just don't know. But what we do know is by the time we pick up the story of Moses, he clearly identifies with his people, because he goes out among them one day, and he sees an Egyptian overseer mistreating a guy, and then he waits until no one is around, and he murders the guy. And that's another thing where if you watch the movies, it's always like, he scuffles with the guy and then a brick falls on him or something, or, or uh, you know, he rescues the guy. But actually, what it sounds like is he just waited until no one was watching, and then he killed this guy. And he thought, I'm going to get away with this because nobody saw it. Unfortunately, people did see it. It got all the way back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was angry, seeking to kill Moses, and so Moses flees into the desert of Midian, where he becomes a shepherd, where he gets married, where he presumably expects to spend the rest of his life just doing desert nomad stuff. But then what happens? What's the, it's another like really famous Sunday school story, right? The burning bush, yes. Moses is just hanging out one day and he sees a bush on fire. And for some reason, the fire isn't consuming the bush. And Moses is like, I got to check this out. What's, what's the deal with this? And we'll pick up the story, Exodus 3, verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, to, to see the burning bush, that is, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the father, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Everybody always is terrified when they meet an angel or meet God or have an encounter with God. It's, you know, it's the Christmas story. The angel visits Mary, and then the angel says, be not afraid. Um, the shepherds, be not afraid. I have come to bring you good tidings of great joy. The reason they say, be not afraid, is not because they're not afraid. It's because they're afraid. It's a terrifying thing to have an actual encounter with a living God. And Moses, lest we forget, the meekest man to ever walk the earth, um, he has the humility to understand that. So God says, I've seen and heard the plight of my people. I want to liberate them. Now, you're going to be my dude, Moses. And uh, we'll pick it up in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. Come, this is God speaking, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So his first response is not, yea, Lord, I hear you. It is, who, me? Me? And I actually think, so Moses is going to press his luck, and we're going to see him clearly commit sin 
in this passage. We're going to see him say, God, I do not want to obey you. But I think in the name of charity, we could cast this as not sin. I mean, this is really just like, who? You want me? Like, I'm supposed to, what? And we, we can sympathize, right? We all do this when God asks us to do something in faith, when God has something for us to do. When we have the clear call of God, whether it's like a pastor has talked to us or a friend or a counselor or we just have it on our heart, there's something I need to do. We kind of say, who me? Like, I, I need to step up and lead my family? Me? I need to respect my husband? Me? I need to get a new job to bring in more money? Me? I need to start a relationship or end a relationship? that's not honoring to God, me? I, I need to rebuke that person? I need to witness to that person? Me? I do a hilarious uh, dad joke thing that Meredith laughs uproariously ev at every time where sh she'll be like, hey, I need you to change uh, MJ's diaper. And, and I'll, I'll do the thing of like, like as if there's someone standing behind me that she's talking to, and then I'll go, what, me? And she thinks it's funny every time. Um, what does God say when we say, who, me? Uh, verse uh, 12, chapter 3, verse 12. <clears throat> he said, so Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Um, God says, but I shall be with, will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So again, Moses is pushing back a little bit, like, God, I'm going to need a, okay, I get it, you want me to do this thing, but I'm going to need a practical plan here. Like, what are the steps? What am I actually going to say? What am I actually going to do? And, and again, we do this kind of thing when God has a thing for us to do, right? Like, if I'm going to have a difficult conversation with my wife, with my husband, I need a plan. What's it going to look like? And that's not always a bad question to ask, right? Uh, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now that is one of the most profound statements in all of scripture. I am, I have no beginning, I have no end, I just exist, I am. I mean, the way to understand, it's kind of one of those mind-blowing things that's hard to even talk about, but it's like, I, Nathan, I am not just am. I don't just exist by myself, right? I exist because my molecules hold together. I exist because I'm drawing oxygen. I exist because my parents met at a certain time. I continue to exist because blood continues to go through my veins. There's so many things that had to have happened in the past, have to be happening now, and have to happen in the future for me to continue to exist. It's all dependent on a bunch of stuff. That's not God. God just is. He depends on nobody, on nothing. 
and he always has been, and he always will be, which we cannot comprehend with our little human brains. So God says, I am, and he goes on to explain his plan for Moses, how he's going to free the Hebrews from their bondage to the Egyptians. And Moses says, behold, you have but to speak, O mighty one, and I obey. Except not. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Now this begins to feel like maybe... I mean, I've been there. I would be the same way. But maybe there's less charity that we can give to Moses now. Like, he's definitely just, every time God's like, you got to do this, he's just pushing back in a way that starts to show maybe a lack of faith, right? He's just saying, I can't do this. It's not going to work. They're not going to believe me. And again, we do this. All the time when God has a difficult thing for us. Like, listen, it's not going to work. I can't love my wife. Have you met my wife? I can't figure out how to love her. It's not going to work. Well, God is kind to Moses. God says, here's how it's going to work. So uh, verse 2 of chapter 4. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Which is not something you usually think of, you know, like Charlton Heston or somebody doing. Just, you know, God gives you a sign, reveals his power, and you go, ah! And you run from it. But again, I think we sort of do that, right? Like, God, I really, I can't do this. Okay, here's the way that you can do this. Ah! Go to verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, so God has shown Moses now many signs how Moses is going to prove that he's coming in the name of the Lord. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Once again, we do this all the time. Oh, Lord, I cannot love my kids, for I am slow of hugs and affirmation. Oh, Lord, I can't obey my mother, for I am slow of a hand to vacuum my room or whatever. Verse 11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. So Moses is just finally, not it. Nose goes, not me. I don't want to do it. Surely there's someone else that you can send to do this. And here's how we know that this wasn't just humble self-deprecation. This was sin. Verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. So God got mad, which is never a good thing. And he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. So before we move on, I don't want us to miss this point. What is it in your life that God is calling you to do? 
What is the act of obedience that is difficult for you? Whatever it is, end or a difficult relationship, rebuke someone, witness to someone, respect someone, discipline a toddler, discipline a teenager, love a teenager, exist as a teenager, be single, bear with suffering, deal with past abuse or neglect. If God has called you to do it, then he's given you the tools and the ability to do, you, do it, right? He's given you the church. He's given you the scriptures. He's given you friends. He's given you counselors. He's given you whatever you need. Your job is to obey. Moses obeyed when he didn't want to obey. And here is the thing that I want us to see. When we obey, even when we don't want to, God is kind and he actually changes our heart so that we start to want to. God also condescends to our weakness, even our sinful weakness. Like God never just says, nah, Moses, you're going to do it. God always is like, okay, I'll work with you. I mean, he's angry. I mean, Moses sins and God is angry. But, but God does, God is kind in the way that he deals with Moses, right? God is like, okay, I get it. Here's your objections. Let's figure it out. Continuing the story, what happens? Moses returns to Egypt, says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, uh-uh, not going to happen. And so then we have a whole bunch of plagues. And a few of them, the Egyptians can actually reproduce. Most of them, they can't because our God is better than their fake gods. So we've got uh, water turning to blood, frogs, lice, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. And every time Pharaoh hardens his heart, even as his economy, his nation, his people are being decimated. And finally, God has had enough, and we have the awful, awful plague. Still not as awful as what Pharaoh decreed for the Israelites, remember. He said, let every male die, male child. God sent his angel of death to take the firstborn. And so it says, there was not a house in Egypt that did not have someone dead. This is like one of the most awful displays, awful in a holy sense of God's power, right? And so Pharaoh finally says, okay, you can go. And so they plunder the Egyptians, it says. They take all the stuff. Like Pharaoh's just like, take whatever you want. So they, they just, they take gold, they take livestock. They, like Egypt is just destroyed because they stood against God and they stood against God's people. Well, that doesn't sit very well with Pharaoh. And I'm sure we all know the story. He's like, no, uh-uh, I'm gonna go after him. So he musters his chariots. He comes after them. He backs them up against the Red Sea, which is the one way out of Egypt, right? And we've seen the movies. The pillar of smoke stands between the people and the army of Pharaoh and the water parts. Interesting thing about that, actually reading it, is that in the movies, he always, you know, Moses goes like this, and then the water just does that. Sounds like it takes all night. Sounds like the winds blew and it took all night. But that doesn't make it any less impressive because there, it does describe the two walls of water that the, that the people of Israel pass through. And then, in, a, in a, just a, you know, bummer of a military strategy move, a real wily E. Coyote moment, Pharaoh's like, hey, let's follow them through those two giant walls of water that are only being held up through a miracle. 
And of course, the waters close and kill all the Egyptians, including probably Pharaoh. It's interesting, in every single movie version, Pharaoh doesn't die. I don't know why that's the intuitive thing for filmmakers, but from context clues and the way the scripture talks about it, and just from the fact that he was an evil tyrant that deserved it, it seems like Pharaoh probably dies here. So God delivers his people. And then, then let's look at what happens next, because Moses puts up with some stuff after this. Because Israel is kind of the worst. I mean, they are the worst in the way that I'm the worst. They are the worst in the way that you're the worst. And in, in that it's hard sometimes for us to trust God. It's easy for us to complain. It's easy for us to think that God is not providing for us, even when he's clearly provided for us in the past, right? But Israel has a hard time trusting God. They whine and they complain, starting with the Red Sea story. Actually, actually starting even before that. But one of, the, one of the worst times is when they're up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army has massed. And these are the people who have seen all the plagues, who've seen the killing of the firstborn. They've seen all this stuff. And they start complaining like, Moses, were there not a gra enough graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the Red Sea? Um, you know, out in the desert? And we just, you know, we have to see that that's us. That's us. And then they go to Mount Sinai. So God provides for them. They keep complaining. Ah, we're hungry. Did you bring us out into the desert to die? And God provides manna from heaven, bread from heaven, and then God provides meat. And then they get to Mount Sinai, where G Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law. He gets the Ten Commandments. God begins to give him the law. And the people are like, ah, eh, he's never coming back. And so what do they do? Build an idol? What kind of idol? They build a golden calf. And this is where I really want us to see that God... When we obey him, when we do as he commands us, he does change our hearts. Because look at this. So Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, and God knows that the people have built this terrible idol and that they're in wanted wickedness under it. And uh, look what happens. Uh, Exodus 32, beginning in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people who you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Now, if it was me and I had been leading these people and, they had, and God had done all these wonderful things for them and they had been complaining against God nonstop the whole time and now we get to the mountain where God's presence has come down to give us his law and the first thing they do is build a golden calf... I think I'd be awfully tempted. I think even if the people were great, I, mean, I might be a little tempted to say, yeah, kill them. Build a nation with me. That sounds good. 
make me a great nation. And let's remember that this is the Moses that said, literally, send someone else. What happened to that Moses? He became this guy. There's another part where Moses says, blot me out, God, before you blot. He became someone who cared deeply for these people, who had great zeal for them, who argued with God. We do not have time to talk about, like, God doesn't actually change his mind and stuff like that, right? But Moses became something that he wasn't, right? It turns out if you say, I'm going to obey God and do the difficult things that he has for me, God will give you a heart for the work. He will change your heart. You you look at the love and charity and humility of Moses. We need to obey first and sometimes and then let God help us want to obey. So what happens next? Moses goes down. He smashes the tablets. If you've seen the Charlton Heston movie, the ground opens up and everybody gets, all the bad guys get swallowed. That's actually conflating a different story. But he punishes the people on behalf of God severely. About 3,000 of them die that day. He also grinds up the golden calf and uh, they have to, like he mixes the powder with water and they have to drink it. And we're short on time. But Moses leads his people, leads God's people through the wilderness and puts up with rejection and rebellion again and again and again and again, down to maybe the unkindest cut of all, which is they get to the promised land. The whole point was we're leaving Egypt to go to the promised land, which was promised to Abraham hundreds of years ago. This is like the whole deal for us. And they're like, eh, the people don't want to go because they're scared of the occupying forces, the armies of the nations that already occupy the land. These are the same people that walked through the Red Sea and, and all but two men are like, no, this is too big for us. We can't do it. And at that point, God has had enough. And he says, this entire generation will die in the desert. They will not get to enter the promised land. And so they wander in the desert for 40 years. And actually Moses disobeys God and not even he is allowed to go into the promised land, although God is kind and does show him the promised land. During all this time, Moses is a mediator standing between the people and God, sometimes very literally, and that God is like, I want to destroy these people. And Moses is like, please don't. And Moses is the lawgiver. I mean, you could preach 19 sermons on all this stuff. I'm just going through it real quick. Um, God wanted his nation to be a holy nation, to be set apart, to be different, to be a witness to the entire world, right? And so to achieve that, God gave his people his law, which included the moral law, which is written on all of our hearts, you know, thou shalt not murder. We all know that we shouldn't murder. It also includes civil law for the nation of Israel and the ceremonial law, the stuff that stupid people like to make fun of. Like, eh, did you, you know, you read the Bible and it has a, a very, uh, so do you think we shouldn't uh, boil a goat in its, its mother's milk? Because the Bible says that. Yeah, that was part of the ceremonial law for the Israelites, which has passed away. But there were a bunch of laws, right? There were a lot of rules. There was also atonement payment that had to be made for sin through sacrifices, right? Gallons and oceans of blood, animals killed, 
And some, some aspects of that may seem strange or difficult. The Old Testament law, though, has a deeper purpose, which is to point to the need for us to be blameless if we're going to stand before God and for there to be atonement, payment for our sins. And so what or who is ultimately the answer for all that? Jesus, the biggest Sunday school answer of them all. Jesus fulfills the law. He dies, is resurrected as the ultimate atonement. And of course, the moral law, thou shalt not murder, remains binding, but a lot of the other sort of ceremonial stuff has just passed away. We don't follow the dietary, you know, we, we eat pigs. Probably everyone in here eats pigs, unless you don't, in which case I'm sorry. So there's so much that we can talk about in the story of Moses, and I'm sorry we don't have more time for it. But the point I want to draw us to today is that God did all this through a meek man who initially didn't want anything to do with it when God called him to do it. And that should be such a comfort to us. I think it's so awesome. One of the, one of the ways that you know the Bible is the word of God, as, to pose, as opposed to many of the other sacred texts, you know, the Koran, um, Book of Mormon, whatever, different religious books, they always make their heroes so darn heroic. And it's like, well, I could never be like that guy. But we know David's sins. We know Moses' sins. And that's so comforting to know this great hero of the faith, this great icon, this, this wonder worker, was full of doubt and fear when he was called to act in faith. But God gave him a heart for the big job that God had given him. So have faith to obey God and trust him to work with your weakness even when you do not feel like it. Even when you don't feel like it. I asked my wife what like a good example is like, is there something that we've had to, uh, where we've needed to obey God lately, you know, that would be a good illustration for this sermon? Um, you know, where we wanted to, where we didn't want to obey God, but we did, and it worked out. And she said, well, you made me go to the fall festival last Saturday. And I was like, honey, I need, a, I need a dramatic story to, you know, bring my sermon home. And she said, it's a good story, because I didn't want to go, but God wants me to follow your lead, so I did, and we went, and it was really good, and it really recharged our family's batteries, and it was the right thing to do. And God gave you in that moment wisdom to see it, and he didn't give it to me. And God wants me to trust you. And I said, okay, I guess that's a good story. And she said, it's exactly those kinds of mundane things that people don't have the faith to obey God in. We all need the faith to just, like, there's going to be 20 of them every week, right? And I said, okay, I guess it's a good sermon illustration insofar as it makes me look good. And she said, I look, I look good, too, because I went along. So there you go. Be like Nathan and Meredith. That's the point of this sermon. No, be like Moses. Have the faith to obey God this week, whatever that means for you. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that you would give us faith. I pray especially for those who you have given difficult work to do, who you have given suffering to, who you have given trials and temptations to, that you would give them faith for that work and, and obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.